The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Gail Hansen. She is a consulting doctor of veterinary medicine with an MPH or a master's in public health. She's based in Washington, D.C., Formerly, Dr. Hansen served as Senior Officer for the Pew Charitable Trust Campaign on Human Health and Industrial Farming. Dr. Hansen received her Master's of Public Health at the University of Washington in the state of Washington, and she received her Doctorate in Veterinary Medicine from the University of Minnesota. She serves on the board and also an advisory panel and public health committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and she serves on the Animal Well-Being Advisory Committee for Tyson Foods. She recently spoke at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, about antibiotics in our meat supply and the risks that poses to human health. It was interesting in that I noticed that the topic that Dr. Hansen spoke, the session that she addressed, had an interesting title. It was called A Balanced Approach to Understanding the Science of Antibiotics in Animal Agriculture. Dr. Hansen, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I want to talk a little bit about this idea first of a balanced approach to understanding the science of antibiotics in animal agriculture. Is that to say that there is a sound way or a correct way to use antibiotics in agriculture, and is there a dangerous one? Well, I think when we're looking at this balanced approach, first of all, to acknowledge that you, all uses of antibiotics, and certainly antibiotics in food animals, can result in antibiotic resistance. And there are times where, the, where animals get sick, just as people do, and antibiotics is exactly the right thing to be giving to them. So I don't have any quarrel with giving antibiotics to animals that are sick. I do have an issue of giving animals antibiotics to get them to grow faster, or to prevent them from getting diseases that are a result of how we're raising the animals. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting in that antibiotics, and I don't know that all of our listeners realize why antibiotics are used so ubiquitously in livestock agriculture, but that is the fact that they make feed more efficient. So it's probably economically advantageous for the livestock producer to be able to see more weight gain in their animals on a less amount of feed. Is that the rationale for using it? Well, that was certainly the rationale back in the 50s and 60s when these drugs were first approved. And there was some advantages for some farmers to use them. But in the last 10 to 15 years, that advantage has really gone away. If you look at the literature now, it does not give farmers the advantage or their animals the advantage that they might have had back in the 50s and 60s. So even that advantage is something that's historical but really not happening anymore. Mm -hmm. So the use today then, if I'm understanding correctly, is largely around trying to use this prophylactic use or preventing illness based, as you say, on more crowded or unsanitary conditions. 
Right. Well, there's still some that's being used for growth promotion, though that should be going away by the beginning of 2017. Like I said, it really doesn't help the animals put on weight faster as it used to. So I think that piece is going away. But the prevention piece is still something that needs to really be looked at because we are using antibiotics for just-in-case or a specific time of an animal's life. And being a a baby pig that's weaned from its mother is not a disease process. Right. So years ago when we spoke about this topic, you described a situation in Denmark where they are still raising pigs as might be described an industrial model or an industrial method. They're being raised indoors. But they changed the environment such that the pigs didn't need the antibiotics anymore. Right. Well, they still use some antibiotics when the animals get sick, but a couple of things that are different from the U.S. One is that, first of all, they track it very carefully, so they know how much antibiotic is going to what animals, or at least pen of animals, and that the farmer knows that, the veterinarian knows that, and the Danish government knows that, because they must report that to the the government, and so that's all tracked very carefully. And the antibiotics are used if the animals are sick. Or if, if there's a group of animals and one is sick, and if you don't give antibiotics to the others, you know the, the rest of them will get sick. But they did have to change some other things. They wean pigs later than they used to. They don't have them stocked as densely as we do. What they feed their animals is different from ours. Ours is very much corn and soybean-based, and they have differences there. They give the pigs things to do besides fight with each other. So they have what they call enrichments. There are things for the animals to do, ways the animals are kept to keep them healthier. Mm-hmm. So not so concentrated, and are the animals still on concrete? Are they on earth? What is the difference in terms of their living conditions? They're still kept in what I call intensive, or many of them, most of them are still raised in very intensive circumstances. So they are in barns, and most of them don't go outside, just as in the U.S., The animals are on floors that are a little bit different than what we have in a couple of ways. One is that they have part of the, at least the the farms that I've seen, have part of the floor is cement with um, some kind of bedding in it, and then there is some slatted area where the animals will urinate and defecate. The pit where that manure falls into in Denmark is much shallower than it is in the United States. In the U.S., it can be easily eight feet deep which when I was trying to convert that to a Dane, they said, oh, you must have that wrong. Nobody would have a pit that deep. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do. And in Denmark, it's only allowed to be about 18 inches deep. So they have to clean it out more often. So the animals aren't standing over the ammonia and the other gases that are released from the urine and the feces as they are in this country, Mm -hmm. at least not as long. So there there is a difference in how the animals are, are kept. They're also, they don't use gestation crates, which are, individual pens for the for the animals where they can't move, they can't turn around, they can stand up and lie down, and that's all they can do. They don't use those in Denmark. They have group housing, and once again, they give the pigs something to do besides pick at each other. Yeah. Well, I would imagine, just as it is with humans, when we're under stress, our immune system is weakened. And so I'm going to assume that that's one of the reasons why the pigs wouldn't need to be medicated with antibiotics because they aren't getting sicker. They aren't getting sick because they aren't under under the same level of stress. 
Right. They're not under the same level of stress because of the management differences. So if the animals are not as crowded together, they're still, you know, they don't have lots of room to cavort around, but they still have more room than we give the pigs in, in this country typically. Like I said, the pigs have something that they can do. Pigs are intelligent animals, and they can get bored if you don't give them things to do. So they... They've changed that. They change. They pigs are weaned at a much later age in Denmark than they are here, but that allows the colostrum and the milk from the, the sow from the mother pig to help that baby pig's immune system, so that the baby pig A is older, so their immune system is better, and they've had the advantage of of getting their mother's milk for a longer period of time before they're put onto a more sort of grown up feed, if you will. Yeah, that's so interesting. Would it cost livestock producers so much more to shift their system? USDA just came out, their Economic Research Services, or ERS, just came out with a report on exactly that, of how much would it cost farmers to change over to a system where they didn't use antibiotics. Mostly they looked at growth promotion, but they also looked a little bit at prevention and looked at what the cost would be to the farmers, um, to farming in general, and to the marketplace. And their conclusion was that there was really going to be very little cost to the farmers, the marketplace, farming in general, that it would be in the neighborhood of 1% for those farms that haven't already made that change. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other factors that go into the cost of raising pigs, raising hogs, that that was negligible. And the cost of raising the animals is a negligible cost to what the prices are that we pay for pork right? or yeah. chicken, for that matter. And we never calculate in, in the, same, in the same report, or at least very few reports that I've seen, where you also are weighing the cost of the antibiotic-resistant infections. Right. That cost is not factored in at all. So if you look at... You know, can we keep one or even one person from getting an antibiotic-resistant infection from from the meat that they're eating or from the way that we're raising animals? That should be factored in, but it's a difficult thing for to figure out exactly how to do that, and so they've just left that out of most of the calculations. But that certainly is something that needs to be considered, that not only are we looking at the cost of the antibiotic or not, raising the animals with antibiotic, but let's look at the societal cost. Let's look at what it really costs us to have antibiotic-resistant infections. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing reports from Consumers Union where they just picked up different packages of meat in the supermarket. I believe they looked at pork, and they found that antibiotic-resistant bacteria is pretty commonplace in supermarkets, in meat cases, all over the country. So we are, correct me if I'm not interpreting this correctly, but the antibiotic-resistant bacteria then would be produced in the barns where these animals are raised, and then at the slaughterhouse, the antibiotic-resistant bacteria is there. The people working at the slaughterhouses are affected. The workers working in the on the farms are affected, the hospitals that receive the meat could be at risk, and then we take this meat then to the supermarket and we bring it into our homes and expose ourselves to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Am I tracking the, the antibiotic resistance effectively here? You're tracking at least some of it. The other part to keep in mind is that 
most of the bacteria are in the feces of the animal. And most of the feces don't end up on your meat or at the slaughter facility, but they don't go nowhere. So that those feces, that manure, ends up either being used to fertilize crops or it gets into the waterways or it, be, it gets into the dust that gets picked up. So there are lots of other ways for that antibiotic-resistant bacteria to get around. So I try to remind people of that, especially people who say, I don't have to worry about it, I don't eat meat. Right. Well, if you don't eat vegetables, grains, drink water, or breathe air either, then you might be able to say that. (laughs) But if you're not doing any of those things, you're probably not going to say that anyway. Right. Well, I know that the topic of crop uptake of antibiotic-resistant bacteria has been discussed. I think there are probably a lot of unknowns there. But I want to make sure that our audience understands that the fecal material is spread on our fields and crops, we can only assume, take some of it up. I don't know how much of it remains viable. Yeah, there are, they're just beginning to look at how much of it remains viable and then also looking at, depending on how the manure is, how and when the manure is put onto the, the plants and the kinds of plants there are that, you know, certainly plants that touch the ground or are in the ground, even if they aren't taking that up as their surface contamination, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, or even the, the genes or the, the pieces of the bacteria that promote antibiotic resistance, are those around and are those available? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Dr. Gail Hansen, a doctor of veterinary medicine. She holds a master's in public health, and her area of expertise is antibiotic use and industrial farming. Well, Dr. Hansen, I want to jump to some recent news headlines and the reason why I wanted to have you back on the program. The first headline I saw was that despite all that we know about the risks of antibiotic resistance, we know in the public health community that antibiotic-resistant infections cost our country billions of dollars every year. But there were two headlines that caught my eye. One was, we're eating less meat but using more antibiotics on farms than ever. The FDA data shows farms are using more antibiotics despite the resistance threat. And the last and most concerning report was titled Apocalyptic Pig, The Last Antibiotic Begins to Fail. So let's talk a little bit about use. Despite the fact that we know the risk, is it true that we are using more antibiotics on farms? Well, certainly the the sales data and sales data may not be exactly the same as use data, but there's got to be a pretty good correlation. And the U.S. government has been tracking this total use of antibiotics since 2009. And from 2009 to 2014, which is what the last report was, there was a 22% increase in the antibiotic sales for food animals. It went up 3% from 2013 to 2014, but it's gone up every single year. So that's disconcerting when we know that the number of animals that are being raised has stayed pretty constant. It's gone up and down a little bit, but not amazingly so, and it's pretty much the same as it was in 2009. So, yeah, we're using more antibiotics for the same number of animals in ways that we don't even know what those ways are because we aren't tracking that part of it. We do know that if you're looking at all the antibiotics that are sold for food animals, It was 33 million pounds. And if you look at just the antibiotics that are the same types of antibiotics that people use, we're looking at 
almost 21 million pounds in 2014. What is driving the increase? I wish I knew for sure. We don't, we mean in the U.S. government, doesn't track that, doesn't ask anybody to keep track of that specifically. Listening to the industries, the pork and the poultry and the beef industries, they keep saying that they're using fewer and fewer antibiotics, but the sales data would say that there's a disconnect there. They say they're using fewer and fewer, then why are they selling more and more? It's not being stockpiled. So one has to think that, in fact, they probably are using more. What they're using them for, once again, we don't have that data. Nobody's keeping that data, or if they are, it's not publicly available. Hmm. Well, what then happens is that we start seeing our antibiotics in medicine begin to fail. And this latest report looking at the colistin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What is colistin, and tell me about how the resistance developed. Right. Colistin is, it's a really, it's an older antibiotic. It was first brought around in the 50s, I think late 50s. But it wasn't used very much in people. And the reason it wasn't used in people is because it's toxic, it's poisonous to the kidneys. And so you have to be very, very careful, and there's a lot more people who have kidney problems if they're given colistin. And so that drug wasn't used very much. However, it was used quite a bit in some parts of the world, including China. And the Chinese put out a report last month saying that they found resistance to this drug, colistin, which is now being used. It's now being used as sort of a a drug of last resort because Mm -hmm. of the toxicity, because of the problems. It's rarely used. But now, because we've basically run out of antibiotics to use because of antibiotic resistance, Collison is really a drug of last choice. With nothing else that will work, Collison has been useful because it does work, and you have to weigh the, you know, do you have the person die or have a kidney problem? Well, you'll take the chance on the kidney problem if the alternative is the person dying. Yeah. But in China, they found that they're now seeing resistance to Collison, and they found it in pigs. They use a lot of antibiotics, and they use a lot of Collison, in pigs in China. That's scary enough to me. And that how they found that resistance is on a, a piece of the bacteria that moves from bacteria type to bacteria type. Yeah. Other countries in the world started looking for this same resistance, and they found it. At least a couple of countries in the UK and in Denmark, they've also found this same resistant gene, and not just on E. coli, not on just one type of bacteria, but on six different types of E. coli, and on salmonella, a completely different bacteria. That's the very scary part. So now our very last antibiotic, we're starting to see resistance to that antibiotic too. There is nothing left. Are pharmaceutical companies working on developing new antibiotics? There is some research on that, but there's not a lot of research. It's a, for a company to develop an antibiotic costs a lot of money, and it's not something that is used every single day in every single person. And as a new antibiotic gets developed, most of the infectious disease physicians will say, oh, good, this antibiotic is our last chance. Let's not use it. So for a company to spend a lot of money to develop a drug that they know isn't going to be used is just a bad economic model for a pharmaceutical company. So I get that. And they've also sort of run out of the the types of antibiotics that 
they've been able to, to find. Now, there's some interesting new research that, that they're starting to look back at the places where they looked for antibiotics in the past, looking for trying to find new ones. But that's still in its infancy. That's going to take five to ten years before it's out. Hmm. I expect a lot of people will be dead and or disabled before we figure out a way out of this mess. That and the, the fact that, you know, we tend to think of, people tend to think of, oh, I don't need an antibiotic, I, I don't have an infection, but really how medicine has evolved worldwide, we really rely on those antibiotics. So people who are immune compromised, people who are getting cancer treatments, people who are getting hip replacements or knee replacements, all of those happen because we have antibiotics that are still useful. If we don't have antibiotics that are useful anymore, those go away. Transplants go away because the dangers of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which means we have a bacteria we can't treat, the chances of getting a bacterial infection that will kill you outweighs being able to do some of those things. How do we get ourselves out of this mess? <laughs> I wish there was an easy answer. I think the things that we can do is to be be good stewards of what we've got. And rather than waiting until nothing works anymore and saying, okay, now we need to find something new, is to say, what do we have now? How can we reduce our use of antibiotics? So if the bacteria are not being bathed in antibiotics all the time, if you will, there is not an advantage for those antibiotic-resistant bacteria to survive. And so the ones that are not as resistant have a chance to sort of come back to becoming the dominant Bacteria. So if we cut back our antibiotics, both in human use and certainly in, in food animal use, so we're using it when we need to, but only when we need to, sort of the right drug for the right time and the right amount, and, and are very good stewards of it, I think we can walk some of that back. We probably won't be able to walk it back to where we were back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Some of that is, is genie out of the bottle stuff. But we may be able to walk some of that back. Yeah. Do you work with a lot of land-grant universities? Do you see at all the influence of, say, the pharmaceutical industries and some of the larger industrial meat producers? Where do we see agreement and disagreement, and what are our agriculture students learning or our doctors of veterinary medicine learning in these land-grant university settings? Well, land-grant universities traditionally got their monies from the U.S. government and their state governments, and that, those monies are drying up, and so they're looking for other places for especially research money because there's, the research money is not available from either the state or the federal government. So they're looking to drug companies, to production companies, to anybody who's got money that will help do more research and do more science. And I don't believe that... Research is being stifled, that someone comes up with with something that a drug company doesn't like, that that is being stifled. I don't think there's a lot of that going on, but it's more a question of what questions are being asked. Mm. So if you're a drug company, you want to ask the questions that are going to help you with your drug company. And if you just don't ask the other questions, you won't know. So I think it's it's more that that becomes a little bit more insidious of of not only what questions are you asking, but what questions are not being asked, what questions are not being researched. And that's where I think we we start to run into some some issues of, and I understand that. If I'm going to give somebody money to do research, I want them to do the research on the things that that are important to me. Sure. 
What do you tell consumers, or what would you like our listeners to know about this situation, and what kind of difference can we all make? I think that's the key, is that there are things that people can do that will make a difference. It's easy to say, oh, my gosh, I, there's no way I, I can do anything on this. I can't get a handle on it. There's nothing I can do. But there are things that people can do specifically. You know, certainly in your own health is to take medications as they're prescribed, not demand antibiotics. If your physician says she doesn't want to give you an antibiotic because you most likely have a viral infection, is to listen to her and not say, yeah, but I need something, doc. As far as for our food and our food animals, is to look at the labels, and it takes a little bit of work. You have to be looking at, does it say never antibiotics never used, or antibiotics, there's a, a label that's available for schools and hospitals that's a responsible use label. So it's Certainly, each one of us can go to our schools, go to our hospitals, go to our other institutions, long-term care facilities where we may have loved ones living and say, where are you sourcing that meat? Is that meat that's from animals that have been raised with minimal amount of antibiotics, antibiotics only for treatment, or is it what's considered conventional antibiotic use in the United States? And if they say they don't know or if it's conventional, say, why is that? Let's change that. I want my kids to be given, be fed meat that's from animals that are raised with minimal or no antibiotics. Are there specific labels that you direct consumers to in the marketplace? I mean, I always look for the organic label because I know there's a third-party inspection, and I know that antibiotics are not allowed in an organic food system. And I warn people about the natural label because it's my understanding that that does not imply that there's any antibiotic restriction. Right. Natural just means that not too many other ingredients have gone into the further processing of that meat. It says nothing about how the animals were raised and what antibiotics were were not used. The organic label is a good one to look at, though for once again it becomes tough as a consumer because for chickens, for example, antibiotics are allowed to be used in the egg before the animal is hatched and up to day two of the animal and still be called organic. Some organic farmers they know I want no antibiotics to be used at all, and that's how they raise their organics. But there is that little loophole that you need to be aware of. The no antibiotics ever, that's a, also a good label because that really does mean that there were no antibiotics. And if it's verified by USDA, it means that somebody has at least looked at it to see that they're following what they say they're going to follow. There's also, like I said, for schools and other institutions, uh, hospitals and long-term care facilities, there's a label for poultry called Certified Responsible Antibiotic Use. Not available in your grocery store, but available, once again, for your schools and hospitals, long-term care facilities. And to ask to have poultry that have been raised under those circumstances, which means the animals can get antibiotics if they're sick, but they're not given routinely to the animals. There are things to be done. It's certainly... It may seem like you're you're not doing very much as a spitting into the ocean, but to send a letter to USDA, to FDA, to, to your member of Congress saying, this is important to me. I want to make sure that antibiotics work when I need them to work, when my family needs them to work. I want the use of antibiotics to be limited to the uses that they're intended to, to, to treat bacterial disease. 
Well, Dr. Hansen, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and helping us understand ways that we can protect our society in the future. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Gail Hansen, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, Masters in Public Health, based in Washington, D.C., and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks, Dr. Hansen. Thank you again for inviting me.